Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And over to verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May God bless his word to us. Of alienation and its cure. It is widely accepted that the author of this letter is Peter. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. I won't go into the reasons why a minority say that it could not be Peter. Suffice to say they are not particularly convincing. Investigate it for yourself, if you like. That's your first part of homework. Peter is probably in Rome, which he hints at uh, later on. And in case you are not aware, this is Peter writing the great apostle and friend of Jesus Christ himself. He was originally named Simon. This man who left his life as a fisherman to follow Jesus for three years, who ate with Jesus, regularly frustrated Jesus, who doesn't do that, was loved by Jesus, rebuked by Jesus, and rescued by Jesus from drowning. This man who saw a glimpse of Jesus' magnificent glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. How's that for a wow moment? This is Peter, whose words about Jesus being the Christ were the rock on which the church was to be built. This man, Peter, who betrayed Jesus and denounced knowing him. This Peter who saw Jesus die on the Roman cross and went away cowering in fear for retribution from the Roman and Jewish authorities. This man, Peter, who couldn't believe his eyes when he saw the resurrected Jesus and was forgiven for his betrayal. This is Peter, who saw the risen Jesus ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. So what is this letter all about? Peter is writing to Jewish believers who are undergoing tremendous suffering and persecution. And he instructs them toward Christian stability and Christian life and the proper expression of this stability and growth in their life. And throughout this letter, as we'll come to see, Peter stresses a hope which is so alive, so glorious, so very certain that any persecution and any suffering can be endured with patience because of We will hopefully see that as we go through this series, I'm sure. And who is this letter to? It's in verse 1. To God's elect, 
exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Peter is writing to followers of Jesus in what we call modern day Turkey. Peter refers to them as exiles, or we could say pilgrims or sojourners. Isn't that a great word? And while official, systematic Roman persecution of the Christians was still to come, the Romans were indeed starting to persecute the church at the time of Peter's writing in the middle of the first century. Peter could see the writing on the wall coming. Indeed, Jesus had warned them. Systematic persecution was coming. It was coming quickly. How were the Christians to react? Christians were beginning to be alienated from others in their communities. And they were being set apart for persecution. How were these people to react? For example, take the the province of Bithynia up in the north. We know there were communities of Christians thriving and growing in this region within the first century. Very soon after Jesus had ascended back to the right hand of the Father, we know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul tried to go in there and he was blocked by the Holy Spirit. We know about Christians in this area shortly after this letter was written. Due to a series of letters written in the beginning of the second century by Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of Bithynia, to the Roman Emperor Trajan, concerning these troublesome Christians. In these letters, Pliny is concerned about the rapid spread of this superstitious Christians. And he views Christian gatherings as a potential starting point for trouble and sedition. We're not quite there in Britain yet, are we? And Pliny also wrote about how he executed Christians for crimes against the state. And while the crimes of these Christians are not written down anywhere, as far as we know, it was more than likely that these Christians were arrested and killing for refusing to bow down to the Roman gods. And Peter here calls them exiles or strangers. But a better translation of this word is that word sojourner. These people are sojourners, pilgrims, they're travellers, they're temporary residents in a foreign land on a journey. As Jewish people, they would have recalled the time when Abraham called himself an exile and sojourner among the Hittites. But they are sojourners not only in an earthly sense, scattered throughout the empire from their homelands due to the persecuting Romans, oh no, Oh no, they are also sojourners in a spiritual sense in that this earth was not their final destination. It was not to be their final home. One day they will be called to their permanent home in heaven to be with the object of their faith, their God, through their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Their eyes fixed on the future city of God just as Abraham's eyes were if you read back in Genesis. These people have a salvation which means that one day their sufferings will cease, their hope fulfilled and they will live with their God forever. Wow! How's your imagination for that? As I've said before, I've been sent back twice. But note that Peter also calls them elect or chosen. These people are chosen and have salvation. 
Again, they would react by thinking back to Israel being God's chosen people to be a light to the whole world. And what does Peter remind these people about God? He reminds them that this God is a God of salvation and that this salvation is a work of God, not of any human hand. And what type of God is he? It is a God we refer to as the Trinity. God being a Trinity or a triunity is something which is ineffable to our minds. It's a great mystery how it all works together. And we only know in part now. It's one of the problems that people tell me they have with the Christian God. Why must God be Trinity, they say to me. And the word Trinity isn't actually in the Bible, as I'm sure you're aware, because that's their accusation against it, particularly the Mormons. And they are partly correct, because there is no explicit biblical text which says God is Trinity. However, the concept is explicit throughout Scripture. None more so here than this little, little, little letter of First Peter. And salvation is born from love, And the Trinity is love exemplified. As Christians, we believe the Bible tells us that God is made of one indivisible essence of substance and this is expressed in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Each belongs to the whole undivided essence of God. The totality of God exists in the Father, in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is co-equal, co-eternal, self-conscious and self-directing. The three persons of the Trinity never act in opposition to any other member, but are always in complete union and harmony. This is our God. And this Trinity is also a love relationship. Throughout the Bible, God is love, the Bible declares. If God was a single unit or a single essence, as some people say, then how could this God be love? For love requires more than one person for it to be active love, doesn't it? God, who is Trinity, is love. The Father totally loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son totally loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit totally loves the Father and the Son. This one Trinitarian God oozes and exhibits love at all points. And this God commands that his followers love one another so that he will be seen to those who still have not responded to his call of love. Is that you? Because God is calling you. And as we see here in 1 Peter and elsewhere in the New Testament, the work of salvation is a coordination within and by the Trinity. In Ephesians, Paul writes that the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals. And here in our passage tonight, Peter uses slightly different words. So let's look very briefly at Peter's angle of salvation. Firstly, God the Father foreknew. Peter here tells us that those who would call themselves Christians, those who are the elect, were chosen and foreknown by God the Father. What on earth does Peter mean by this? Foreknew and foreknowledge in the Bible in relationship to God and humanity can mean to set one's love on a person or a group of people. And we see that context in operation here. 
These chosen ones are, as Peter says, the elect. God elects or he chooses. However, we also know in other parts of the Bible that God the Father wants all of humanity to be saved and that nobody should perish. So in reading those two statements, it's imperative that we accept both as equally and absolutely true. God elects and chooses, but he also wants all people to be saved. All of humanity is called to salvation, but only some people respond to the Father's love call. Who the Father knows, and they are the elect. When was the last time you told somebody about this offer of salvation from the Father? This morning? Last week? Last month? Last year? Never? It's an individual's choice which dictates whom they will serve. Will they serve God or will they serve themselves? God has lavished his love on all people and foreknown them, but only a few people respond to the Father's love. Indeed, his heart of love. Are you one of those who have responded to the Father's heart of love? Or perhaps not yet. This salvation, though, is not through the efforts of the individual human. No, no, not by a long way. So God the Father foreknows who are his, those who have responded to his call out of love. But love alone is not enough for salvation. Here comes another member of the Trinity. Remember, salvation is an operation of all members of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies. Now that's one big Bible word, isn't it? What on earth does Peter mean here? After the service, ask Chris and Sue Cook, who led our prayers, how many products they sell that have to do with cleaning. There are pages and pages of them, aren't there? Is that right? Yes. And that is known as sanctification. Cleaning and being cleansed is a major part of living the Christian life. Sanctification means that you as a Christian is being washed clean by the work of the Spirit who lives within all those who are the elect, who are the Christian. Sanctification is where God the Holy Spirit is transforming the Christian as the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control is produced in your life or the life of a Christian. You see, before you became a Christian, you were alienated from God and separate from him. God, the Father's love, called you to respond to him. When you responded and became one of his children, a Christian, your status, your condition before God changed. While once you were separated from him, now you are set apart for him and you have been declared holy and clean before him. How is this done? It's done through the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit who lives within all Christians. God lives within you. And now another question naturally arises, or perhaps that's just me, how is all this possible? God the Son sacrifices. It's possible only because of the obedient work of the third member of the Trinity who Peter gives, God the Son, Jesus Christ. It was his obedient death on the cross doing the will of the Father that salvation is possible. He paid the price. 
when you responded to the Father's love and were declared sanctified and cleansed through the work of the Holy Spirit, you responded in obedience to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the sprinkling of his blood on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, who did the perfect life, who was the sacrifice required to turn aside the Father's wrath against humility. But obedience here, in these verses, is not only obedience in response to the Father's chosen call out of love, obedience here is also in the daily life of the Christian. I know if Bruce was here, he was expecting this moment. The sprinkling of blood to the initial Jewish readers would, of course, refer back to that wonderful book of Leviticus and the sprinkling of blood for purification from leprosy and other skin diseases. And while the people with these skin diseases were declared unclean and fellowship was disrupted between them and the people without the disease, they were still part of the people. They were, despite being ill, still part of God's people. And in the same way, the Christian picks up dirt during the day as they go about their daily life and become defiled by sin. Or is that just my experience? It is Peter reminding his readers that as they go about their lives, that they are to confess their sins to God regularly through the sacrificial sprinkling of the blood of the Son, Jesus. They are to make sure that unconfessed sin doesn't act as a barrier between themselves and with God. Peter is reminding them that this group of sojourners were chosen by God, the Father out of love. They were cleansed by the Spirit to enable them to enter God's holy presence through the sacrificial obedience of the Son. It would also serve as a continual reminder that they were indeed the Father's children. How about you? When was the last time before tonight you confessed your sins to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And to these people, Peter sends grace and peace. The Old and New Testament. The blessing of grace, which is God's undeserved favour towards humanity, coupled with the Old Testament blessing of peace, shalom, peace with God, through God's grace, to God's people. So in our first part we learn from uh, 1 Peter 1 that Peter is reminding this group of sojourners that they were chosen by God the Father out of his great love for them. That they, these sojourners were cleansed by the Spirit to enable them to enter God's holy presence through the sacrificial obedience of the Son. Now we go to part 2 which is in chapter 2 and verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And these verses start the second section of this letter. While the first section, chapter 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 10, is primarily about God and discussing his nature and his work, this second section contains more specific instructions about putting into practice those things from the first section. And here Peter continues to remind them. 
this time writing about living out their salvation, particularly in the light of suffering, persecution and subsequent alienation from the communities in which they are based. And here in these two verses of chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, we see Peter reminding these groups of people of several things, particularly as a result of them having responded to the Father's call of love to them. Peter reminds these sojourners that they are indeed God's dear children. They are beloved of God. Frequently in both his letters, Peter reminds his readers of this. And this is to act as a motivation to keep persevering by keeping on remembering who they were in God and to God. They were beloved children of the Father who are on a journey. And again, Peter reminds them that they are in exile, not just because they're probably not in their homeland, but because their permanent home was not in this world. This earth was only their temporary residence. These people, foreknown and loved by God, sanctified by the Spirit through the obedient sacrifice of the Son, were resident aliens, whose citizenship is in another country, another world, citizens of heaven. They were travelling, as were their forebears in the Old Testament, towards the heavenly city. And then he now reminds them to abstain from sinful desires. Peter's saying, look you people, the Spirit has sanctified you, the Son has sacrificed for you, so don't go sinning anymore, you silly people. You are in a battle, a spiritual battle. The real battle you have, despite appearances, isn't so much the governing authorities or those people who hate you and curse you and spit at you. No, your real battle is against your old nature within you. Your old ways will try to rise up and enslave you. Peter writes for them to overcome and to battle. Remember that when you do sin, he tells them, keep short accounts with God and with those you have sinned against. Regularly confess your sins to God and ask forgiveness. How can I explain this battle further? I wonder if you've ever had a favourite piece of clothing, perhaps a coat or a shirt. Most men probably do, as I'm sure most wives will know. And it's so comfortable and cosy that you wear it every day, everywhere. You never wash it because you love it so much. And then one day you realise that this coat was dirty and smelled rank. It was infested with fleas and mites and disease-ridden bacteria. See, the wives are laughing because they know their husband has something like this. It's filthy and it needs washing. It's no longer fit to be worn, yet you still want to wear it because it's so comfortable. But you couldn't wear it because it was only fit for burning and burying. And it's the same for the Christian in regards to the old sinful nature which each person is born with. This old nature we have is in conflict with God because it is self-centred and self-pleasing. It's not God-centred and God-pleasing. And when you became a Christian, you gained a new nature that is both God-pleasing and God-centred. 
When Jesus died on the cross, it was for your old sinful nature as well as for your sins. Your baptism in water symbolizes your old inherent sinful nature as being buried with Jesus Christ and you are raised to live a new life with a new nature. How's that for a wow factor? I know Aubrey's listening out for the number of wows. And now that you're a Christian and you have a new nature, you are no longer separated from God because of your old nature. You have a new nature and God has taken care of your past and he no longer holds your sin against you. And as a Christian, you have a, a new spiritual nature to help you fight the struggle against sin and disobedience against God who is now your king, your master, indeed your father. You are his beloved child. And moreover, he has put his spirit within you and the more you allow this spirit to control you, the stronger your new nature becomes. Your old nature is gone. It's burned, buried, like that coat. And you are to continue living as if you're always putting on your new nature like a new coat. So that as his disciple, you are indeed living a life worthy of his name. And why are they to do this? Let me read. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter here reminds these people to live lives so innocent, clean and good that when the government and others accuse them of wrongdoing, people simply would not believe the accusations. Could that be said of us today? I wonder. Their very lives, Peter writes, were to be a testimony to the God that they had their hope in. They were to bear witness about the great God they served to those who had chosen not to respond to God's call of love. Their accusers, mockers and slanderers may be saved too by the sojourner's lives being so radically different and clean from impurity. And the day of visitation mentioned here by Peter could mean that great and final day when, when Jesus comes back again and his great shouts of acclamation rise to confess him as Lord. But I think it's more likely that day when God himself visits to those who have responded to his call of love upon them as individuals. When those who mock and torment join the sojourners in worship of this great and almighty God as the ancient church of Bithynia was doing. Hence Pliny's complaint to Trajan. And Wesley, Wesley writes about these verses, that they by your good works which they shall behold, see with their own eyes and may glorify God. In the day of visitation is that time when he shall give them fresh offers of his mercy. Wow. And so, how are we in the 21st century to respond and react to this letter, which is almost 2,000 years old. So what? Well, maybe you're here tonight and you would not call yourself a Christian. I don't know. Then please do not leave here tonight without asking somebody more about how you can become one of these Christians, how you can start the Christian life 
and grasp hold of the Christian hope. God the Father's love is calling you. God the Father has chosen you. God the Holy Spirit is waiting to cleanse you. God the Son is waiting for you to accept his obedient sacrifice. Come. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, maybe that's why you're here tonight. You may have been a Christian for about a week or perhaps for decades. I've been a Christian about 275 years. I don't know, but I do know what Peter would say to you. A thought I often often have is this. Would the apostles, such as Peter, recognise the gospel of Jesus Christ which they preached? Would they recognise it in our churches today? I would have to say that in some places that I have heard, they would not. The apostles would decry what is preached and spoken under the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The apostles' letters to modern churches would make 1 Corinthians seem like a lullaby. I can imagine Paul, but then I've got a pretty good imagination in that sort of way. Indeed, what would they say about our church here at PBC? I wonder. And as individuals, what would the great apostle Peter tell you tonight? Peter would tell you that as a Christian, you were chosen as an object of love by God the Father. You have been cleansed and sanctified by God the Holy Spirit through the obedient sacrifice of God the Son whom you accepted. Your home is not on this earth, as a Christian Peter would declare. Your permanent heavenly home awaits you. Lay up your treasures there and not down here where they will rot, rust and decay. Persevere through your suffering and persecutions. You, Christian, seek to glorify God in all aspects of your life and how you react to those things that are irritating you, particularly those people at traffic lights who don't know that the lights turn green. Hey, young me. Keep confessing your sins, those little traps that dirty you and mar your fellowship with God and other people. And then when you've confessed your sin to God, accept that you are forgiven by God and forget them. You may need to even ask people you have sinned against for forgiveness. That's a bit radical, isn't it? Don't leave it too late to do that. Even as a Christian, sin mars your fellowship with God and it mars your fellowship with other people. Your old nature is fighting against you and you are in a spiritual battle, says Peter. Satan doesn't want you to inherit your heavenly home and he will do all he can to drag you down. He is after all the master trickster, isn't he? Even if he does need to get his legs waxed. Resist him in the power of the sanctifying Holy Spirit who lives within you. For greater is he who is within you than Satan who is in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit who lives within you than the sinful nature, your old sinful nature and the God of this age, Satan. And in all aspects of life, as a Christian, we are to be seen to be different. Of course, some of us are more different than others. But we as Christians are to be so different that people will ask the reason for the hope that you have 
and why you are so different. We are to be countercultural where you need to be, particularly in matters of ethics and morality, or well, the three great things about which the church doesn't like to discuss, but a lot of churches fall down on money, sex, and power. We are to love our neighbours and our enemies so much that we win them over to the gospel of grace. We as Christians are a witness to God in our communities. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we are witnesses whether we want to be or not. We can be good witnesses or we can be bad witnesses. As a church, we are a witness for God as a body. A witness which is not just to the ends of the earth through our mission partners, but we are a witness also to our community of Ringwood. What do the people of Ringwood think and say about us as a church? What do they think and say about the way that we conduct our business, how we treat each other, and how we relate to each other? Because I tell you, they are watching, even if you do not know that they are watching. How do those that know you, who haven't accepted the Father's call, how are they relating to you as a Christian? There is coming a time in this nation, at least, where to be a Christian is going to result in ever-increasing marginalisation from society. I think most Christians can see that a mile off. How will you and I react when such reprisals and retributions come upon you as a Christian? when we will be alienated simply for being Christian? How will you and I respond to it? Well, Peter says we are to respond to alienation by holding firmly to God and look forward to our heavenly home, but not without being of some use here on earth. We are to respond to those seeking to alienate us by loving them, but by loving God first, so that we may win some over to the Father's heart of love. For instance, when a homosexual couple asks the church if they can be married here, at the moment we can legally say no. But some people from the gay community want to change that. They want churches to be forced to marry homosexual couples and not to be able to say no because it's their want. Additionally, I don't know how you're suffering today. I know that I've suffered in the past and I'll continue to suffer. But I do know that one day our sufferings will cease. Our hope will be fulfilled and we will live with our God forever. And you know what? It will be all worth it, you will exclaim. And no doubt we'll hear more about that as we progress through this letter in this series. Let's pray and then we'll have a final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your written word, the Bible. We thank you that it's been saved for us down through the centuries. We thank you for the inspirational life of uh, people such as Peter. We thank you that he wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago and we have a copy. Help us as your people here in Ringwood and wherever we go to be fruitful witnesses for you. 
may we be reminded that the Holy Spirit is within us. Help us to confess our sins when we transgress. And may we go from here being willing to be good witnesses for you so that even this week one person we know may come to know you personally. And we ask this, O Father, through the name of your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us to energize us and to help us engage in spiritual battle. Amen.